America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know, one minute, one minute, okay. We everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also here in the heart of Europe in Belgium. Today, we are talking about migration. In Europe, the most recent migration crisis may just be beginning, but the one that shapes uh, views and opinions is the one that took place in 2015, when millions of people fleeing civil war in Syria we're looking to get to Europe. And over a million asylum seekers made the perilous journey to Europe's borders, trying to escape conflict, political persecution, economic difficulties, all of the things that come alongside war. Europe responded, uh, different countries in different ways, and now is facing concerns that uh, there's going to be another crisis like this following uh, the fall of Kabul to the Taliban in August of this year. And of course, Crisis Group, among others, have warned of the real potential for humanitarian emergency. We're going to talk about this, and we're also going to talk about how migration is changing uh, in kind of the new world that is evolving due to climate change, due to geostrategic changes, with uh, Liz Collett, uh, who is uh, also joining us from Brussels. Um, Liz has long been a leading voice, a leading thinker about migration policy. She has worked with leading NGOs and policymakers. Today, she is a special advisor to the Director General of the International Organization for Migration, but she was also the founding director of the Migration Policy Institute Europe, which is based in Brussels. So Liz, thank you for joining us and welcome to War and Peace. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Liz, I'm going to ask you to start off with some definitions. Um, you know, people often get confused about, is migration just about refugees? Uh, you know, when I moved from the United States to Belgium, did I become a migrant? Sure, there is a distinction between refugees and migrants and a very important one, particularly when it comes to the international legal regime. So first of all, I can confirm that you are a migrant. You are living in a country outside of your birth for a significant period of time. The main difference between a migrant and a refugee is that refugees are considered to be a special category of person who's crossed a border who's been deemed in need of protection. They may be fleeing from persecution, from conflict, for a variety of different causes, and that is covered by the Refugee Convention. So there's specific international law that affords protections to individuals fleeing from persecution. So refugees have specifically protected status that is important and separates them slightly from migrants who may be moving for work, who may be moving for family, who may be moving to study, and a variety of different reasons, but aren't necessarily being forced to move. In the middle of that is a category that often creates confusion, which is the asylum seeker. You have a right to cross a border to seek asylum, and that is to have your claim for refugees protection assessed by the country to which you arrive. So you can have an interim status where you are not yet a refugee, but you're seeking the status of a refugee and the government of the country you're in is assessing that claim. So that's a little interim status between being a migrant and a refugee because if you are not seeking asylum and you're crossing a border without authorization, a country then can then say, actually, we don't authorize your entry into the country. Please return home or please return to a transit country. And that's where a lot of the difficulties in these conversations tend to center. 
And Liz, where does uh, the idea of the internally displaced person fit into this picture? So it's a dynamic that we've seen increase in, in recent decades, which is a large number of people may be displaced due to conflict, due to persecution, but increasingly from our perspective, due to disaster and changes in climate. So we saw, I think, around 30 million people displaced in 2020, the vast majority of them due to floods and storms. So we see that kind of displacement taking place. Not everyone crosses a border. Many people are displaced within the country in which they live, but they still then need additional support, shelter, food, and often support to sort of integrate into the economy in which they've been displaced to. So Liz, where does the International Organization on Migration fit into this picture? IOM is uh, celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. It's the International Organization for Migration. And so its mandate covers people on the move. Increasingly, as time has gone on, IOM has become involved in a number of emergency situations and heavily involved in humanitarian response, and particularly when it comes to internally displaced persons. So we deal with all forms of mobility, and particularly when it comes to internal displacement, the sort of uh, the people who have been displaced due to disaster, for example. IOM around five years ago became a related agency to the United Nations, so we're now part of that UN system. So we look at all aspects of mobility, from how migration can contribute to development through to the needs on the ground of particular migrants who might be in distress, which is something we saw during the pandemic, for example, and really offering advice and thinking around the management of migration and different government policies. You've spent a lot of your career working on these issues in Europe. So looking at what happened in 2015 and what's happened since, what do you think are some of the lessons identified? What have countries learned from 2015 and are they the right lessons? So I think in many ways, not so much has progressed in terms of policy development within the European Union and the main asylum laws, for example, and migration laws still stand, particularly at the the European Union level. Politically, we haven't seen so much move forward since 2015. Many of the divisions between countries that existed in 2015, 2016 are still standing and many of the concerns that countries express over migration have not progressed on. Perhaps on an operational level, I think there is a greater understanding of the need to be prepared for changes in movement, particularly irregular movement and those who may be in need of protection and how to support those at different moments. But we also see an increased focus on external border controls and how people actually cross borders, which we can come back to in more detail. But it hasn't changed enormously in the last five years in terms of those dynamics. But one of the interesting features, I think, is that the pandemic is home to many countries. The reality that migrants were performing on the front line during the lockdowns across Europe. Migrants were working in supermarkets, they were working in fields, they were delivering goods and services, they were working in hospitals and in care homes. And we have seen the sort of essential role that migration plays in our societies, which is a dynamic that has always been there. It's not new, it didn't arrive with the pandemic, but perhaps there's a new recognition that uh, migrants are deeply integrated into our societies and communities and often taking on the roles that are not so comfortable 
So do you think that has changed uh, attitudes substantially? I mean, let's say, for instance, in Europe, where people are looking with more favor on migration, because I have to say it doesn't seem that way, kind of looking at the debates right now. We've seen um, a rise in racist and xenophobic acts around the world and sort of migrants being seen as perhaps carriers of the virus and, and during the pandemic and sort of threats. And that I think was exacerbated by the role that borders played in terms of managing the pandemic across the world. So on the one hand, no, I think we've seen a certain tension around migrants and migration. We've also seen their exclusion from particular systems. So being able to access health services, being able to access vaccinations around the world, we have a particular concern that migrants uh, need to be included into those kinds of national programming, not just for their own sake, but from a public health perspective. But at the flip side, I do think some governments are recognizing the absolute need for workers. We've seen a number of governments who organized charter flights and made exceptions for seasonal workers, for example, understanding that in order to get food to tables, these sectors are incredibly reliant on migrant labor. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. So a modest change, Liz, but you've been watching the new crisis building up in Afghanistan. You're watching the internal displacement in Afghanistan. Will this lead to a new wave of people coming to Europe? And is anyone ready for it? So this is the billion dollar question that seems to be circulating within policy circles within Europe. From IOM's perspective as an international organization, our primary concern is currently what is happening in Afghanistan. We have a perfect storm, which is a combination of a pending economic meltdown the risk that almost all of the population may be plunged into extreme poverty. We have an ongoing health crisis. This is taking place in the middle of a pandemic. But we're also seeing the effects of an ongoing drought, people moving because of a lack of access to food and water, limited availability of cash in a country that even prior to this was one of the least developing countries in the world and extremely economically vulnerable. So our primary concern is what happens over the next few months within Afghanistan. We've seen over 660,000 people displaced just this year, adding to a total of around 5.5 million people displaced within the country. So that is sort of the first priority is a huge humanitarian crisis that we need to address. And this is in a country with some 35 million people total, right? I mean, so this is a huge proportion of the population of the country. Yes. And we have to assume also that there are a significant proportion of that population, if not dispersed, also experiencing short food shortages, difficulties accessing food, in part because food prices are going up, cash is short, and a lot of different factors playing into this. When it comes to movement into the surrounding regions, I think it's important to note that right now, cross-border mobility is limited. So people are only able to cross borders in certain circumstances. So most neighboring countries have closed their borders to a large extent. We need to acknowledge that several of the neighboring countries, particularly Iran and Pakistan, are already hosting large numbers of Afghans who've left in recent years, both in terms of those who have refugee status and those who are undocumented in those countries, so several million individuals. What we often lose then is the fact that for people living, particularly in those border areas with those neighboring countries, cross-border mobility is not just a one-time excursion. It is a circular mobility that is maintaining livelihoods, so trading across borders, 
seeing family members accessing healthcare or other services and moving across borders. This is currently limited at this time, which then may have an impact on livelihoods. So mobility is hardwired into the Afghan society, and yet in some cases it's now being more limited than it was before for those who may not have an intention to leave, but rely on that kind of mobility to live their lives. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and Hugh Pope and I are talking to Liz Collett about migration, refugees, and uh, the crisis in Afghanistan. So Liz, soon after Kabul fell, Vladimir Putin said that Russia wasn't going to take any uh, Afghan refugees and that he was very concerned about them coming through the Central Asian countries because they have largely open borders with Russia. And indeed, the Central Asian countries have, um, as you've said, have closed their borders. But, you know, are these countries right to be so worried? Where are Afghans going to go? Where do they want to go? And are Europeans right to be worried also about onward migration to Europe? So I think it's a very complex picture. And in terms of uh, drivers, when we look back to data from several years ago, we see a significant proportion of people who really only intend to travel to neighboring countries for a year, two, three, or two or three years to earn money and return home. So it's a sort of economic movement on a short-term basis. We do see others who then have an intention to move further afield, but it's sort of integrated into that region. So I think the assumption that everyone wants to move to Europe is not borne out by what we've seen historically or what we're currently seeing. But as you note, uh, many of the borders to neighboring countries are closed. I think our concern, and I think we sit alongside UNHCR in this regard, is that as far as possible, neighboring countries should keep their borders open in order to allow people to move, particularly those who are in need of protection and are at risk, and to be able to support those neighbouring countries to then indeed manage that movement effectively. And the calls on the international community are really focused on the situation in Afghanistan and focus on the situation in the region now. When we turn to onward movements, we're not currently seeing um, large numbers or changes in movements. That's not to say there aren't already people on that journey at different points during that journey, either in the Balkans region, either in Greece or Turkey, or trying to cross the Iran-Turkish border. So we are seeing people who are already on the move. We're not seeing large numbers moving now. Of course, these things might change, particularly if conditions deteriorate in the region and people feel like they have no option but to move. At the same time, this is a country in extreme distress whether people have the cash and resources to be able to make that journey or to pay facilitators to make that journey is also a question that needs to be answered. So people may have the intention to move, whether they have the capacity and resources to move is a whole other question. So it's a very mixed picture. Liz, you've talked about the outward pressure, the pressure to move being very strong at the same time countries in the region closing their borders. What is the long-term impact of that? I mean, for instance, couldn't it be said that one reason they're staying is they know that it's going to be much harder than it was, say, for the Syrians in 2015? And if it is indeed harder and these borders stay closed, you've talked about local economic incentives for countries to keep their borders open. What other arguments can you make to keep the borders open? The primary reason, I think, is a humanitarian one. It's it's for people in need of protection to be able to seek that protection, and particularly in a context of an economic meltdown and and ongoing climate challenges faced in that country. The issue of border closures, I think, is an important one then further along the route. We've seen over the last few years 
the spread of physical border controls from walls to reinforce border crossings that are preventing people from crossing borders in the way they might have done previously, whether to claim asylum or whether to move onwards. One of the concerns that we have, and this is for the whole region, but also an issue here is we're coming into winter and people will be on the journey in cold and brutal conditions. And the risk of crises at the border, which don't necessarily have large numbers of people involved, but are intensely acute crises at those border points where people are not able to cross, but also have no access to shelter or support. And we've already seen a number of deaths at the border just in the last few weeks of people who are dying of hypothermia. This is of deep concern because it's not necessarily the number of people who move, but the fact that when they move, they may be moving in situations of acute vulnerability, and particularly at those border points where they are effectively stranded. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. And we've even seen countries instrumentalize this, right? I mean, there are people stranded at the border between Belarus and Lithuania and Poland in kind of a you take them, no, you take them, which brings us back to this question of, you know, countries and their lack of willingness to put the humanitarian impulse uh, first. Now, with all of this, how do you think countries will have to adapt with climate change? The Afghanistan refugee crisis, the Afghanistan internal displacement crisis is uh, something we're fairly familiar with, right? War leads to population movements. With COVID, we've seen people unable to move, but sometimes still having to move. With climate change, we're increasingly seeing people move, whether for greater comfort or for greater economic opportunity or for access to water. Are we looking to a world where what countries want and their desire to control their borders becomes increasingly moot because people are just going to keep on moving? I don't think we'll ever see a world in which borders are moot. I think they are too intrinsically linked to sovereignty. And, and we've seen how governments really take that as a strong part of the role of a government is to manage borders. That's not to say the pressures won't change. And I think it's important to understand that with climate, it's a varying number of factors that we need to take into account. You know, environmental dynamics have long been a factor in shaping migration and may act as a multiplier effect. So you may not move purely because of climate change, but it may be a number of factors, your ability to maintain a livelihood, opportunities elsewhere, and climate is an aggravating factor that may force you to move. In other cases, we're seeing disasters, flooding, weather storms, things that repeat on a regular basis to the point where it is impossible to live in that place. And particularly in certain parts of the world where we have low-lying developing countries where rising sea levels are making it impossible to maintain livelihoods. So there are lots of different dynamics around the world when we talk about climate change. We often see the acute edge of it when we see a flood or a disaster but we're also seeing those slow onset situations where it's becoming increasingly difficult, particularly in rural areas, to maintain life. And I think there are a number of things we need to do in terms of helping build resilience of populations to be able to manage that so they don't feel like they have to move, but there are other opportunities, as well as seeing how migration might be a coping mechanism to dealing with that. It's something that IOM is very keen on really trying to bring into the conversations at global level in terms of how to manage climate change and think about adaptation of populations to mitigate the idea that everyone needs to be on the move as a result. And I think a final important point is we talk a lot about cross-border mobility within the context of climate change, but it's a significant 
feature of that that most people are moving internally, whether to rural or urban areas, whether moving out of unstable areas, whether there are lots of weather-related events into more stable areas, but it's not necessarily about crossing borders. It's about people being able to move internally as well as across borders. And I think that that often muddies that conversation. Liz, can you help us put this into a bit of context? Because people have been moving throughout history. We've seen that in 2015, that massive exodus from Syria was probably the biggest flow of people since the Second World War, right? But as a historian of migrant flows, uh, look back, are we seeing something that's truly exceptional? I mean, and is climate really going to be that big an aggravating factor compared to the overall impact of conflict and wars and so forth? So I think you have to look at climate as one of many factors that impel people to move, and it will continue to be the case. It might become a stronger factor in the future. What we have seen in the past is the global population has expanded. The proportion of that population that moves across borders stays relatively consistent. It's moved up to around 3.5% of the world's population from about 3% 10 years ago. So it's pretty stable, the number of people who cross borders. I think what we are seeing increasing dynamics of internal displacement. But does that mean that that people are making a fuss about something that's not actually going to be a very big factor in their personal lives? 3.5% doesn't sound like very much. Is it because in different countries, like Turkey, for instance, has suddenly got 5 million refugees, whereas a country like uh, Ireland may have very many fewer, and therefore the average is not a fair way of looking at it? So I think there's no single number that affects how people feel about migration. Various factors can make people more or less comfortable with migration, including what happens in their locality, but also how they see it perceived in the media and how it's portrayed in the media is something that might be threatening or how it's used in politics is something that might be threatening. In reality, migration takes lots of different forms and often When it comes to the local level, people say, well, actually, I'm fine. What's happening in my community is great, but I don't like what I see on an aggregate level. That concerns me. I don't see anything affecting me personally. I'm speaking very conceptually here, but there has been some research that sort of suggests that people do not see migration as a threat as it concerns them personally, but they see it as a threat societally, which then you have to understand, well, what are those factors that play into that? So they employ a Polish plumber, but complain about the Polish village in the next door county. <laughs> so Liz, how should countries respond? What what are smart policies for states that expect to have inflows of migrants and also states that expect to have a substantial amount of internal migration as, uh, you know, whether it's due to climate change or economic factors or conflict or anything else? What are smart resilience uh, strategies? So I think the key thing to remember is there's no single policy and there's no single approach. Quite often we focus on the flashpoint issues, as with the the focus right now on Afghanistan displacement and onward movement, we're focusing on that because it's a crisis and it's immediate. What we often don't see is the fact that thousands of people move across borders every day and they move with visas and residence permits and they live and they work and become part of the communities they live in. And so we focus on the difficult edges of migration and sometimes forget that it is an enormous phenomenon that has a huge range of policies attached to it, whether it's a labor migration policy, a social integration or inclusion policy taking place at a local level, or the mechanics of border management. And we've seen in the pandemic how the closure of borders suddenly 
and the difficulties countries have been having in predictably opening borders to manage cross-border mobility, you see suddenly how important these policies are. You need to offer predictability. You need to offer people, they cross that border, they'll be able to cross on the way back again. We've lost that sense around the world, which is extraordinary and something that I think we don't talk enough about. But there's no single set of policies. There are policies that governments can undertake to reduce the vulnerabilities of individuals on the move. You know, everything from counter-trafficking and support of victims of trafficking and ensuring people are not exploited in the workplace or on the move, all the way through to the kinds of policies that are about supporting communities of internally displaced or building the resilience of communities to change, whether it be uh, climate change or other drivers that are impelling people to move. One way you can look at it is through the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration which was um, agreed and adopted by a number of countries at the end of 2018. It has 23 objectives, which is not number, literally and figuratively, but it has a wide range of objectives. And within that, a number of different proposals to states of, if you want to implement a comprehensive immigration policy, these are the things you can do, bearing in mind the, the fundamental rights of migrants and the things that all societies need in order to flourish. So it is a part of the branding, a 360 degree look at migration policy. So there is this kind of blueprint that exists, a framework. It's non-binding. States lead on the implementation of it. But it does offer a lot of that richness about all the different things you can do to manage migration in the future. And it sits alongside a global compact for refugees, which takes that special element and those individuals who have additional protections attached to them because of their particular needs. So side by side, these should be able to offer countries a blueprint about what to do. But a lot of this also then comes down to the willingness of governments to invest in crises before they become crises. And I come back here to Afghanistan, support for the country and then support for the neighboring countries in order to manage what is an accelerating humanitarian crisis is incredibly important in order not to then have to deal further down the line with a crisis of mobility as well. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Liz, we are out of time, but thank you so much. Uh, I think this offers a tremendous amount of food for thought for individuals, for policymakers, for analysts, for all of us. For our listeners, you can and should follow Liz on Twitter. Uh, she is at MigrationLiz. And you can also follow the uh, IOM, which is at UN Migration. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Well, I too am a multiple migrant. And I was so happy to hear Liz talking about the positive sides of what everyone can do about it, and especially states, and that there are 23 guidelines. I hadn't heard that before. As for Crisis Group, we don't normally cover migration per se, but we do do a lot of work on Europe, Afghanistan, and its neighbors. So you can check out the regional pages on the left-hand side of our website, www.crisisgroup.org. And if I may, we did uh, recently do uh, and had a podcast episode on a migration-related topic, which is the Russian origin Muslim diaspora. And uh, you can listen to the podcast episode with uh, Jeff Rattel and also check out that work on our website uh, as well. You should uh, follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter to uh, learn more as it evolves. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya Olaker. You can also check Crisis Group out on Facebook and Instagram, where we are at Crisis Group.
And also, please feel free to tweet at us about what you like or don't like on the podcast or topics you'd like to, us to cover or people you'd like us to have on the show. We will pay attention and we will listen, especially as our new season gets underway. And if you're listening through iTunes or another platform, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review as well. War and Peace is a partner in a network of Europe-centered podcasts, Europod. Check out some of the others. And a big thanks to producer Bull Media and to our coordinators, Rebecca Zeruhun Asifa and Finn Dunbar Johnson, who get Oli and I to the starting line each fortnight. The biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. We're looking forward to offering you yet another interesting conversation in two weeks. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.